everyone and welcome to the latest edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange, we like to start by asking, what are you thinking? And this week, we're going to be joined by Michael from Hills Pet Nutrition. He will be chatting to us uh, about all things food related, um, as well as talking about some of his adventures in the veterinary profession. And just to introduce myself, my name is Scott. I'm one of the founders of ETX and I'm a European and Royal College recognised specialist in small animal internal medicine. As ever, I am joined by my friend and long-suffering producer, Karen. Is it the other way around? Long-suffering friend. Oh, long-suffering friend and producer, yes. <laughs> um, Michael, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Um, I wanted to just start by maybe um, introducing you to the listeners. So I don't know if you would like to just tell us a wee bit about yourself um, and where your veterinary journey started. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Scott. And thank you very much for having me. Really do appreciate it. Um, so uh, my name is Michael Unsworth. I uh, lead the veterinary team at Hills Pet Nutrition for UK and Ireland. Um, I graduated whoa, 2004, so a little while ago now from the RVC. Um, and I spent my first kind of three years in practice in a small animal. Well, yeah, it was actually a mixed animal practice. A brilliant, a brilliant role. I loved it. Uh, went to Australia for a bit um, where I met my, my other half. Um, but I then couldn't decide whether I wanted to be in the UK or whether we wanted to be in England. So bounced backwards and forwards a bit. <laughs> um, and then in about 2015, having uh, worked, I'd worked at the RVC for a, a couple of years uh, in their first opinion uh, practice in, in Camden, which I absolutely loved. Um, uh, I decided I really wanted to kind of Try something a bit different. I love the teaching side. I really, yeah, that's something that from the RVC when I was uh, when I was working there. I just really loved spending time with people and having having that opportunity to explain it. It's a bit like when you're in, in uh, consults and you're um, uh, that part when you're actually getting to explain things to a pet owner. You can see they're taking it on board and they're actually listening and they're going on that journey with you. And I just that's the part I really love. So I actually moved to a role. Uh, for a company called Durox, who make Alfaxan, and it was really just an educational role. It was go out and talk, teach anaesthesia. <laughs> so we we were lucky. We had three three months of intense training with uh, some brilliant diplomat uh, anaesthetists. Learned a massive amount, and then that was it. We were set free to go and teach in practice, and uh, fl I flew around doing that for a, a couple of years before moving on to Hills, which is where I am currently. Um, in pet nutrition, which isn't an area I ever really thought I would end up in, but I absolutely love. And again, it's uh, it's, it's kind of a, a combo role, but there's a lot of teaching, a lot of education involved. And I think that's, again, the part that I absolutely, that's the part of the role that I really enjoy the most. So a bit mixed. Yeah, it's good though. I think that, um, you know, this is what we're always really interested to hear people's journeys and the fact that actually with um your veterinary qualification um you can do actually quite a lot of different cool stuff yeah and as we seem to find out with people also gives us this kind of passport to other parts of the world so what can i ask what took you to australia initially or apart from the weather yeah <laughs> all the usual isn't it uh I'd, yeah three years in practice i felt i'd, I'd uh, kind of got to a stage where i was comfortable to leave the safety net that was that first practice that I'd uh, started working in. So mm. I felt I had the experience. I was uh, looking, yeah, looking to travel. I always, always knew at uni that, you know, uh, the veterinary degree did mean that we were fortunate enough to be able to go and move elsewhere. And 
as as with a lot of us, uh, yeah, the draw for Australia is the sunshine, the beaches, the opera house. Yeah. Um, so I did a little bit of travelling on the way with some friends. Uh, ended up in Sydney. I think it was the 28th of December 2007. We landed, and uh, had already got a locum roll kind of um, lined up. Oh, cool. It is quite similar to, to working in the UK. Once you've got your head around a few a few additional things like heartworm or and ticks, paralysis ticks and paralysis yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. and the potential snake yeah oh yeah yeah (laughs) i like what it's funny because when i lecture generally you know i i'm I'm doing this anemia course just now and um i always have to put in these like addendums about like i live in scotland it's really boring here as far not boring generally but boring as in (laughs) we don't really have any infectious diseases there's nothing that can actually like hurt you you know, do you know what I mean? Like all of those kind of weird and wonderful <laughs> exotic things that we just don't have, particularly in Scotland. Um, so what made you, so why did you choose the UK? Well, I mean, obviously the UK, but why did you choose the UK and not Australia then? Uh, so having kind of, as I bounced backwards and forwards twice. Are you regretting yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's, it was uh, partly for me, it was family over here, but, uh, but my other half who is Australian, his family are over there. So actually it ended up being um you forget how lucky we are in the uk in terms of where we sit within the world yeah within an hour on a plane you can be sat in barcelona or five hours you can be in greece it's so easy to travel and cheap to what it was Uh, (laughs) um cheap to travel to to go to completely different places whereas in australia it's a quite expensive and b five hours and you're still in australia (laughs) Um, and, and not just that, but actually, you know, you, you can pop in a car and go drive a couple of hours and be in a completely different city. Whereas in Oz, you drive two hours and you, you, you've left a city, you're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, so you, you, de- you definitely take a lot for granted when you live here. And it, when you move abroad, I, I love Australia. I would quite happily go back and live there without, without a second's thought. But it, yeah, the, 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 there were all those pulls and I love traveling so it, was, it really was I think traveling and missing Europe being on your doorstep as much as anything and family. So you didn't wake up one day and think I'm going to I'm going to be involved in pet food now like is that obviously that didn't happen so how no. did you kind of yeah. how did you find your way into this kind of current position? So it, it really was just um, the right time because I was looking to kind of take my next steps career-wise and then the fact that the role was quite multifaceted. So I went from a role where it was genuinely teaching based, but there was a sales element to it, to a role that I'm in now, which is far more about education and supporting the sales teams, educating them actually, uh, and, and working with other teams. So I've got kind of uh, our marketing teams. We help help them if they're putting materials together to make sure they're getting everything right as it should be worded. They're not saying the wrong thing. And, and also actually, and you forget this because, you know, working, when you work in the veterinary field, there are certain way, certain things that you should say, certain things you shouldn't say, or certain ways of saying things. And it, it kind of comes naturally to you when you're a vet or a vet nurse or you're a veterinary receptionist. But if you don't come from a veterinary background, you can say, you can, when you're trying to convey something, you can say it in completely the wrong way that might get mm-hmm. the veterinary profession's back up, shall we say. Yeah. So <laughs> there's almost a sense check. In terms of saying no, you can't really say that. You've got to, you've got to kind of put it this way instead. And in, in on the flip side of that, we take for granted just a lot of the things that we say. And actually, recording um, our podcast with Karen has been really interesting because 
sometimes I'll say something and she'll be like, I mean, like I remember we we, we were talking about blocked cats and she was like, <laughs> blocked with what? Like what? That's a ridiculous thing to say. And actually that is a ridiculous thing to say yeah. if you're not a veteran. Yeah. Where exactly is it blocked? <laughs> Isn't it? You know what I mean? Like, just we, 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 so we say a lot of weird things, you know. Um. Anyway, yeah, so you, sorry, I kind of interrupted you there. No, no, not at all. Not at all. So, yeah, it was, um, it was a role where, ed, you know, education and educating teams and nurses and vets and being, still in being involved with primary care vets and nurses getting into practices, which is the part of the job I love the most. I love going into practices, talking to vets, talking to nurses about nutrition but having got into it I now think wow when I was in practice there's this whole area that I didn't really pay attention to I didn't wasn't really that into food I, I got yeah prescription diets did a job but otherwise I hadn't spent a lot of time looking into it hadn't done much CPD in the area now having been yeah in a really fortunate position where I can actually devote a large amount of time into just one subject area you kind of sit back and go okay yeah I in practice I know now I, I missed out on yeah a fair bit in terms of where I could have made a difference a bit of a difference perhaps live stage foods or or maybe have pushed a little bit harder for that cat to go onto a renal diet where uh, I hadn't perhaps done as much as I should I, I could have shall we say if that makes sense yeah so I, I I suppose that's interesting so when you're in when you're out in practice not at the moment sadly I'm sure but when things go back to normal <laughs> yeah. ultimately I think it's when when you if you were to kind of summarize when you're talking to vets and nurses, just generally why we should be bothered having this discussion about nutrition generally, what do you, what would you say to them? Uh, firstly, I'd say if you don't ask, you don't know. And, it, and that sounds crazy, but I, I still do a little bit of locum work. And now I work, you know, having, having worked for a pet nutrition company and had a lot of time to spend and, and learn about it, um, I'll always ask about it. And it's amazing what pet owners will think their pets. Because you'll think, oh, yeah, they'll just go down Sainsbury's or Pets at Home or wherever and pick up some dog food or cat food. But, you know, yeah, they might do, but they may well not do. And I remember um, not, yeah, probably a year ago or so, I was just in a consult chatting to a, a chap who had, a, I think it was an 18-month-old, slightly over, overweight pug. I was like, ah, oh, so what are you feeding him? And he was like, chicken breast. I was like, okay, what, do, what are you putting with the chicken breast? Mm -hmm. uh, nothing, just chicken breast. It's like, no, but yeah, you must be giving some veggies or you know, a bit of rice or something. No, no, just chicken breast. <laughs> Other than the odd treat, that was all this dog was getting fed. And considering that, it didn't look in that bad shape. It was a bit overweight, mm -hmm. but otherwise it was in, it seemed to be in relatively good health. But I know if I, you know, if I hadn't asked that question and actually intervened and said, right, okay, you need to be aware of, what a complete diet is what a, you know vitamins minerals fiber everything that your dog's probably missing out on by just being fed chicken breast that could cause potential health issues in the long term if we don't do something about it now so if you don't ask you don't find out and and secondly what is you know who should the um, pet owner be trusting when it comes to pet nutrition because you know if I, you go on Facebook or you go online there is just so much information out there and there's some really credible information and there is some really horrendous information misinformation out there as there is in every topic you know if you type type in uh, I don't know paracetamol you'll find all sorts of horror stories as as you can do with any pet food so it to me if it comes to the health of a pet it's the vet and the vet nurse or the veterinary healthcare team 
who should be the point of contact, the point of reference for anything to do with the health of that pet. And if you look at um, long-term health and longevity and quality of life, nutrition does play a big role in that. And therefore, it should be us that the pet owner should be trusting to actually have the accurate information. I think, to be honest with you, I think that's the biggest challenge because I, I, I think people rely on such a variety of source um, of information particularly for diet and I do think diet becomes quite a contentious mm. thing and I think you know it's it's really fair for you to say that the vet and the vet nurse should be the ones who the owners uh, or the pet owners trust as far as giving dietary advice but I I think that's not always the case you know um and I think also our attitudes towards diet are really changing um and I think that's something I've noticed kind of from a social media point of view, certainly over the last sort of five to 10 years, I'm sure you've kind of seen that as well. And and a really interesting yeah. thing, and I wanted to ask you about this, and, and, and I suppose from the point of view, how do we kind of shape that positive trend? There was something on Instagram the other day, a campaign that a variety of kind of influencer veterinary professionals um, had put together. I don't know if you saw this, but the premise of it was just to say, look, at the end of the day, feed your dogs and cats balanced dog and cat food and you're probably onto a winner, which seemed like very sensible <laughs> advice. The, the yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've got a cat. What, what should I feed yeah. it? I, probably cat food. So I think that um, yes. <laughs> now to me, that seems like a no brainer. But honestly, the, 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 the negative backlash to that was incredible. Mm-hmm. And the, the kind of vibe that it was almost some sort of conspiracy theory that that do you know what i mean okay. like this kind of um and i wonder yeah. where where's that attitude come from why are we suddenly up against it as far as as just saying look this is a really good balanced food what's what's the issue with that you know yeah and yeah you know, there is a degree of distrust with any you know and any large company that produces anything i think there's a degree oh it's a faceless corporate they're there to gobble the money and they couldn't care less but actually, ultimately, you know, if, if you're producing something that's causing harm, you're probably not going to be, be in business for very long. Um, the other thing I would say, I think, is people who have got these strong but alternative beliefs will be the ones that shout the loudest. So, you know, you know that full well that they're going to be the ones that are going to be all over the post or making the comments, etc. And your point's got in terms of, you know, the vets and nurses not necessarily being seen as the credible source of info. I, I do agree to a, to a point because there is so much information out there um, and pet owners will turn to online. I mean, if I get sick and I should know better, I go to Google. Like, These are my symptoms. What, what's wrong with me? Oh, I'm gonna, I've got cancer and blah, blah, blah. Worst case scenario, you can't help yourself. But just because a pet owner doesn't ask about pet food doesn't mean they don't want to know. And we know when a pet owner goes into that vet consult, they've got probably got a list of things, you know, they're in there perhaps for vaccination or they're in there because their dogs or cats got diarrhea. That's probably top of the list. But they know they've only got you for a short period of time and you're a professional and, you know, well, you're kind of this, in this, this seeming this aura. I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to ask about this. I'm not going to mention that. That doesn't necessarily mean they don't, uh, won't take what you say credibly. I think as a profession, perhaps we feel slightly awkward about sometimes talking about life stage nutrition, especially because we might, well, I know full well when I was in practice, I didn't really know what life stage food we had out on the shelf. I knew there was stuff out there, but I knew nothing about it. So I was never going to recommend it because, you know, I I would, you know, didn't feel I I would be credible if I were to try. Again, your comment, you know, what should I feed a cat? Yeah, complete life, complete cat food. 
or a dog a complete dog food. It absolutely makes common sense. Um, but that, you know, if we look at um, pet foods these days and the way that they've moved on, I, you know, I really believe, you know, nutrition is kind of a, a, another part of the preventative healthcare plan for your pet. You know, we, as vets and nurses, we talk about flea treatment, worming, um, all that side of things. And we don't necessarily put nutrition into that. But if you look at the biggest common or the most common form of malnutrition in pets in the UK, well, and, and the, in the developed world is, is obesity. Um, and actually, if, if we as the profession took control of that pet's uh, nutrition from a puppy and we were able to monitor that with regular checks, keep a track on the body condition score, weight, and we know what food they're on and we, we can give accurate guidelines and say, right, you, you should be feeding this much, you should be feeding this much. We would be able to be, hope I'd like to think, in far better control of this epidemic that we're seeing um, that, that's being mirrored in the human population. Again, I remember in practice so many times I'd ask people, what, what are you feeding? They'd say a brand that I've never heard of and they'd say, how much should I be feeding? And I'm like, I have no idea. So I have no idea. Whereas if I knew what food it was and it was something I trusted and I knew it was, it was appropriate for that pet or if there was a weight issue, it was a low calorie food, um, then I would be able to give far more accurate guidance as to what to do in that situation. Mm-hmm. I think it's I wonder whether it's 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 funny isn't it because there are some things that are very easy to kind of uh, talk to owners about and justify you know for instance for for me I think it the best example is you know there are some specific conditions where we require a very specific prescription mm. diet and we know very definitively that this diet will help this condition in this particular way um, and I think probably yeah. You know, I think as we've mentioned before, a really good example of that is, you know, with um, uh, management of urinary stones, and and we know that feeding this food will do this thing to this stone, and it, and it all makes a lot of sense. And and I think as vets, we probably feel really comfortable saying that. I wonder whether um, some of it is to do with vets feeling like you've kind of said maybe not comfortable or uh, confident in making these other recommendations um and and you know potentially it's that difficulty that you know and i suppose it's with like lots of things in in veterinary medicine when you start to try and almost you feel that you're maybe getting a wee bit kind of salesy rather than sort of and i I don't know is that do you think that's fair when you're starting to like oh i don't want them to feel like i'm kind of trying to sell them something but equally it's maybe to do with the way that that's something in our mind rather than being an actual thing do you I, know I, mean? yeah, I absolutely agree because you know <laughs> ask any vet or any nurse you know i'm not a salesperson i'm absolutely and you're not a salesperson yeah. what you are is you're the advocate for that pet and you want to do everything you can to ensure that that pet and that owner have the best bond and the best quality of life together um, and yeah, prescription diets, they always tick that scientific box because yeah, there's a clinical reason to do that, but with urinary diets or mm-hmm. a, a diet that manages, um, let's say, derm issues like a, Z, uh, like a hydrolyzed diet, for example. And with yeah. live stage diets, it's like, well, there's nothing wrong with this pet. So do I need to intervene as such? And that bag of food that sat out there that's a live stage diet, what's different to that than that one down in Sainsbury's? is you know is there a, a true difference and we don't we never want yeah as a profession you just don't want to be seen like you're a pushy salesperson but equally you want to do what's best by the pet so there has to be that balancing act in my opinion anyway and if you can learn about and this is one thing i failed to do learn about the food that was out there and find out about it you know why why is it why is it we're stopping it is it just because trying to make some cash 
uh, and the, the, the practice wants to make some extra profit, or is it there's actually a good reason behind it, then perhaps you'll have the confidence to know, actually, yeah, making that recommendation is a good idea. Um, for example, I guess the, the, one, the one example I always, well, two examples I think of, obesity is the easy one. So there are live stage diets that help to deal with that. And that what some of our uh, live stage diets will actually incorporate some of the weight loss management tech from our uh, prescription diets. And then dental disease. So we've got uh, live stage diets now that incorporate some of the dental kibble that we use in TD, one of our uh, prescription diets. So there are good reasons that we can use a live stage diet to help prevent problems that we commonly see. And if, if we can do that, we're going to have a healthier pet, hopefully a pet owner that's spending less money on dentals, etc. down the line, and a happy pet and a happy owner. And so when you normally are um, out and about, what do you... What do you see your kind of key role going into practices as being? What is your kind of major um, job when you're kind of speaking to people in, in that capacity? So when we are lucky enough to get into practice, it'll be generally because one of our territory managers have invited us in. Um, so our TM, we're lucky we've got a great TM team and they're pretty technically savvy. But if they've got um, vets and nurses that want perhaps a little bit more of a technical presentation, a bit more information on the darts and that they're comfortable to give, then we'll go in and do that. Or if we're getting a, gr a group of practices together um, and do an evening presentation on a couple of different disease categories, again, looking a bit more at the science and the, perhaps the evidence base, then again, that would be our role um, to help the TMs. I mentioned before kind of attitude, um, potentially attitude shifts towards uh, nutrition and, and, and diets and pet food generally. Is that something that you feel, do you think that the that, that attitudes have changed whether that's vets or nurses and or, or client, uh, you know, pet owners, do you do you think that that is accurate? Do you think that things have changed over the last sort of um, five to ten years? Yeah, I do, and I think if you look in hu human nutrition, you see kind of a, a mirror almost, or perhaps we're a little bit behind. Mm -hmm. you definitely see trends that start off in the human nutrition side work their way through into the veterinary nutrition side. So. I guess paleo would be a nice example. You see, you know, paleo, people that like to go to paleo diets and then the equivalent would... What, what's that? If you're not the, the caveman diet, I'm going to eat bison and things like that and grains that were... Not heard of that one. <laughs> Karen, have you heard of that? Um... <laughs> <laughs> Did you just make that up? Yeah. Right, no, okay, fine. So, so, is, so bison and grains... But it's, 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 but it's not any grains. It's not wheat. It'll be grains that were existent in the paleolithic period what? i know i know <laughs> i think he's making this up <laughs> let's google it later oh gosh i'll need to i'll i'll go right yeah but well okay but, but i suppose yeah i mean uh, but almost kind of I, what you're kind of saying is kind of faddy stuff like yeah is that some right? of these kind of trends yeah nutritional trends and, and perhaps fads of diets and things uh, raw feeding you've got grain free feeding all these trends that are becoming increasingly visible you can see kind of potentially maybe less so raw uh, coming from the human side grain free got gluten free and gluten free you know if you've got celiac disease you have to be gluten free one to two percent of the human population they estimate to have celiacs and yet they're the entire supermarket aisle now devoted to it because it's seen as healthy uh it's seen as you know, gluten has been demonized as this but you ask ask anybody what gluten is they don't actually really know <laughs> it's just bad for you and i suppose actually and, and and more recently and not that this is a fad or a trend 
but obviously vegan living vegan has become not just because of uh for for people's attitudes towards animals but because of a pre- I, I don't want to say the wrong thing because of potential health yeah. benefits but also interestingly environmentally so i think that's a really interesting kind of shift in the fact that people are then choosing something because they think that actually that might have a positive impact on the environment do you do you think any of these human trends um have a, a positive or a negative knock-on effect to animals I, th- I, ju- I just as i was talking about vegan there obviously our domestic cats and dogs clearly have very different nutritional needs and and obviously veganism veganism is not really something that maybe we recommend but um you know you know but i, I wonder if you see that kind of coming through from from the kind of human human trends yeah so vegetarian vegan diets they are beginning to appear in increasing numbers and you know i think you you could argue dogs could be fed a vegetarian diet if it was if it was balanced appropriately like they, they could can survive on that cats i think you'd have to be very very careful you speak to a veterinary nutritionist like Marge Chandler, she'll tell you. She, she would raise her eyes, eyebrows at you, to say the least. I know that look. She was one of my supervisors, my recent supervisor. She's amazing. So I know, I know that. I know that look very well. And you've got grain free, and there's the whole um, the issue of DCM currently that's being investigated in the US and, and potentially in Europe. Is there an association between grain free or these boutique diets, all these unusual protein sources? Um, such as legumes and peas and things that have appeared. We, we just don't know. Um, I don't think you know, sustainability is a really interesting one because I think, um, again, if you look at pet food, actually pet food, generally speaking, is pretty sustainably produced because what we're using is actually offcuts of, of uh, carcass that's still fit for human consumption, but that humans don't want to eat. So you might say tongue probably doesn't get eaten a lot by humans. It's not particularly popular, but it's a very good piece of meat and should be put to good use. If it wasn't for the pet food industry, a lot of the carcass would probably be burnt or um, disposed of in some way. So actually the pet food industry is, is quite sustainable when they're using um, kind of what, they, what we call uh, <laughs> meat and animal derivatives, so parts of the carcass that whilst are fit for human consumption, we don't want to eat. And interestingly, the really interesting part of that is depending on what part of the world you are, <laughs> different parts would be seen as um, attractive. So tripe might not be nice to us, but there are certain parts of the world will think tripe is a delicacy. So that, you know, different parts will go into pet foods in different parts of the, of the globe. It's, it's quite interesting. So I, I wanted to ask you, because I think I was, I was on a call um, the other day with a drug company, actually, and we were talking about... Um, different this was about kind of uh, different medications and 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 owners uh attitudes towards medications and different things and one of the things that really came up was the fact that people seem to have a lot um stronger opinions about certain things so this is owners i think particularly so they seem to be much more opinionated about what they are putting into their animal whether that would be food or medication there's a kind of i think a a a move towards a resistance towards chemicals so there's a real kind of change i think in people's attitudes and i think we're under a lot more scrutiny as far as people will not just you know the the vet will give you a packet of pills and a bag of food and when it was James Herriot days, they would just accept it. 
because the vet was the pillar of the community. Um, and, and I think they will go home and Google that now and will research, do their own research on the bag of food and the packet of tablets. Um, so I think that's, a, I, I don't know if you feel that as well, but I, I do feel that that's a kind of challenge because I definitely get challenged more about the decisions I'm making uh, for their pet. Yeah, with that, I absolutely agree with you. I think A, information is a lot easier to come by these days. So like you say, you can just go home and Google it. Whereas, you know, 20, 10, 20 years ago, that simply wasn't possible. You wouldn't have access to that. And B, there is, there is definitely a change in attitude. Now, I think vets are still held in very high risk, high esteem, but there's, people are still quite happy to, to, to question it. Why are you doing what you're doing? As long as you, you know, you've got a good reasoning and you've got sound, you know, sound clinical reasoning for doing it, they're generally quite happy. But, you know, I remember starting a, uh, a dog on a course of NSAIDs um, one, just before I left the um, full-time practice. And I had a phone call from the owner that, that evening just to say, I've just Googled it and it says they kill, kill dogs. And it's, that's the perfect example. It's like, well, yeah, and then you've got to spend the time kind of educating the pet owner and what, yeah. It, it's it's that difficult situation is it because you've got to kind of congratulate them for putting the effort into they care enough to, to have gone home and looked into it uh, and and made that phone call and then kind of say but actually you know that information isn't accurate you know you've got to be careful where you read things point them in the right direction for, for the most accurate information and, and the, the same definitely goes for pet food um if you read uh ingredient list on some pet food bags you you just see this list of words that's kind of nonsensical and all you can assume is that someone has taken i don't know the remains of a carcass um i don't know stamped on it swept it across the floor a few times and and then popped it in the pet food but actually there are such strict regulations in place these days <laughs> you have such a way you have such a way with words um, that's, i'm just like what <laughs> So it's terrible. Okay, um, so so the other the other thing that you kind of touched on, and I I certainly don't want to get too controversial, but another couple of things. So the particularly the the upsurge in, in people wanting to feed mm-hmm. a raw diet, um, is that do you find that you're kind of fielding questions about raw feeding, or is that not something that you kind of get involved? Yeah, so definitely through vet practices, because we know full well that uh, vets and nurses are being questioned about it a lot, and I'm having to answer questions from pet owners. And um, when I was in practice, I wouldn't have felt I had the knowledge to actually accurately answer those questions. So it would have been something I would have probably tried to brush off or um, try and come back to another time, having done some reading up about it. And I, you know, you know, and I know why people do do feed raw. You 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 hear there's lots and lots of kind of word of mouth and um, anecdotes out there with all these positive results, and you can see why a pet that was being fed a uh, perhaps a kibble diet that actually has an allergy to one of the ingredients, then going on to a two to three ingredient raw food, suddenly miraculously skin disease improves or GI disease improves. Not the raw food; it's the fact that you've just eliminated whatever that dog was allergic to but pet owner associates it with raw and you 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 can't blame them the the evidence is right in front of them and then there's this this want to feed natural and want to feed something that you can see in front of you and that isn't like a dry kibble that is not recognizable to us and doesn't to be fair look particularly tasty to our eyes but dogs will wolf down quite happily because they think it's the best thing since sliced bread so we're dealing with all the you know humanization side of things people 
there's the guilt side as well if you if you work all day and you come back and you want to do the best so you want to feed something that looks super tasty um there's so many factors that go into it it's funny because i have the opposite like i come home from work and i just want to do something that's easy yeah like i don't i mean honestly the the dedication i think sometimes when i hear what people are creating at home <laughs> i'm like have you who's got time for that like just buy the pet you know for me that's you know who's who's got time for that um but i think it's also interesting because i think the other thing that's a really interesting point that you say because i get lots and lots of comments about some prescription food or 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 dry yeah. kibble food being boring the lack the lack of mm-hmm. variety irritates owners massively you know they 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 but can we not give something that is more interesting and again i have been always been lucky my own dogs do not have a very highly developed palate <laughs> i mean they eat each other's <laughs> so i think yeah. we we're not like at the end of the day so um i've never i've never particularly felt like i'm denying them this kind of really varied diet but i wonder um you know what your answer to that would be when someone says yeah but i want to mix it up a bit yeah. i mean is that important you know how do you justify that yeah and it's a really common issue and that and we as a pet food manufacturer we're actually going to lengths to try and provide additional flavors and different formats in fact last year we launched our um something called stews that look like casseroles yeah yeah so they've got little bits of pea little bits of um, carrot in them and it's all for the pet owner it's not for the pets it's for the the pet owner happy because they they want the variety most dogs and i get yeah you do have finicky dogs and a lot of it comes to down to how we've kind of you know from puppyhood to one year old what we've done have we given them everything under the sun or just fed them normally um but we, yeah, we have we have got to pander the pet owners because they're going to do what they want. And if they're on a prescription diet, we want them to get the maximum benefit. Therefore, we're going to produce formats that enable them to to feed their desire of variability, but still get the benefit of the prescription diet as well. Um, so, kidney diets are one of the biggies in that respect. In terms of, I think you know, not the most palatable of foods, but they're massively improved in the last ten years. And pet owners do want to feed variety. So we're trying to, yeah, we've, we've now got the stews and all sorts of things for our, for our renal patients. And actually, you'd, you'd be surprised the amount of effort that goes into um, formulating foods these days in terms of palatability of the kibble. The, they're sprayed with uh, something that smells, uh, the aromas are appetizing to cats with kidney disease, if it's a kidney diet, for example. So there's a huge amount of science behind the palatability side. It's kind of it's really interesting because um actually as you'll know you know the the ironic if that's not probably the right word but you know kidney d- cats with kidney disease are probably the ones that are most challenging mm. to get to eat yeah. anything sometimes but also you know from an evidence point of view we know that actually fundamentally there is if you feed this kidney diet you actually will prolong the life of your animal with kidney disease you know and that's I think that's helpful from my point of view as, as far as you know we can we can be like look at the end of the day this is really really important and diet, i mean obviously diet overall but i think you know those are sort of really good examples of whether you know diet is 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 just so important to that particular yes. disease and um, management i want to ask if you have ever eaten have you tried all of the diets that um, so uh, not yourself? all but much to my uh much to my <laughs> husband's delight or, or disgust 
disgust. I will always, <laughs> uh, yeah, I will, I will always try what our cats and dogs eat because, uh, it, yeah, it's all it, they're all produced in human grade factories, so it's safe to eat. And I figure if I'm feeding it to my own pets, I should be willing to eat it myself. The only that I think that probably the biggest thing is going to be the fact that um, we don't. Um, we don't put truckloads of salt into them, so that's the the. You know, I remember I, the only one I've ever tasted is AD. Did you? I never knew that. <laughs> and I just I wanted to just I wanted to put a little bit of salt in, you know. Um, wow. Just some fe- just some f- just some feedback for your um. We uh, we used to actually talking about one of the one of the um. Honestly, this is a tr- I can't remember Karen if I talked about this before. But as a resident, um, we used to, when I say we, me, I used to, when I was on um, nights at the vet school and it got really desperate, I used to um, go into the kennel kitchen and eat the hot dogs that we had. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really, I I really did that. Isn't that the, that was was around the same time that I was eating cans of, um, cans of AD. Um, there was so the, just another. Um, I had a, another couple of questions, and the first one is: if you can think of any veterinary people that have been particularly inspiring to you, so veterinary professionals maybe that you've looked up to or found to be particularly inspiring. Yeah, I guess going back to university days. Um, should I mention by name or? <laughs> if you're if you're going to be kind, then yes. If you're going to be offensive, then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get sued. No, no. There was definitely. I mean, at, at university, there were definitely those, and I, I won't. I won't use names. Actually, there were definitely those lecturers and those um, vets when you were seeing practice uh, in the hospital, university hospital, that you would immediately warm to. That had a, just that way that clearly loved their job, but also loved the teaching element and had time for you. That would all, yeah. And those are the kind of vets that you like look up to and think, right, oh, I want to be like you when I grow up, shall we say, when I graduate. Um, I was lucky enough, um, my first ever placement in, in a vet practice before I'd gone to vet school, actually, my local practice, a vet called Pippa, who um, I remember my first day in there, um, she let me watch her do an anal sacculectomy. <laughs> and that was, that was it. And it was just like, I was just absolutely, I was probably 15 years old or 16 years old or something, just absolutely fixated. And she, and she was, like really good at just slowly explaining what everything was and t- teaching me as, as she was going even though I was only a school student at the time um, and she definitely you know just helped kind of get me on that journey and then since graduating <clears throat> um, I w- when, when I was at the RVC actually um, the there were, there were Jill Madsen I think everyone knows Jill Madsen um, was uh, just one of those vets she'd come down and do a couple of shifts at the at the uh, Beaumont Sainsbury Animal Hospital but she just has had a way around about her, and she, you know, I did a course with her as well. And just thought she's, yeah, just a brilliant vet, and just really good with the with the staff, really good with the patients and the pet owners. Um, yeah, definitely someone I used to look up to. It's just yeah, it's, and I think it's funny, isn't it? Because the people that I always remember that are the ones. I mean, good vets and all and all that, but but also the ones that were nice, you know. So I think there's yeah. you know. <laughs> because it, the two don't go together they're some very good vests maybe not always raining um anyway um quite contrasting to my 15 year old experience in glasgow <laughs> because um my lasting memory of the practice that i saw practice at um 
was that in between consults, the vet would have a cigarette in the consulting room, sitting on the consulting room table. <laughs> <laughs> um, that your 15-year-old self, looking back, do you think that your idea of the veterinary profession and what it would be like being a vet is in any way the same as what it actually has been like for you? Um, in as- aspects of it, definitely, yeah. De- definitely aspects of it. Um, in terms of you know what what I saw from the surgery side, the excitement, that side, consulting, and then there are aspects that you just you uh, again you, you you had no idea what to expect. So I guess the stress, the emotional toll that it takes, because um, inevitably it does, because it is such an emotionally charged profession to be part of. Uh, so that that side you could just never never predict, but I you know. I, if, if, if someone were to ask me, you know, would, would you t- take the, make the same decision to be a vet? I would, without a shadow of a doubt, yeah. I wouldn't, wouldn't think twice. That's my next question. You're, you're ruining my flow. <laughs> <laughs> but that's good. So that's, that's, but there you go. There you go. That's, that, that is, that is always, that is the next question. Do you think, do you think that some of that kind of emote, because I, 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 listen, I hear you as far as the emotional toll and almost everyone that we speak to has a similar thing. Do you think that that has something to do with your move away from clinical practice? Do you think that that, that contributed to that decision at all? Um, I don't actually know. I, I, I think quality of life did in terms of the hours that I was working, um, as, as all vets and nurses do. Yeah, lengthy shifts uh, lot, and lots of overtime and perhaps not feeling like people really thanked you or really cared that you did it you just kind of did it because everyone else did so and it needed to be done because no one that that animal wasn't going to have its surgery if you didn't stay back and do it um and then the other the, the, probably the main reason I, I i took the step out of, of practice full-time was just looking for kind of the next progression and, and next challenge really and there was kind of a point where i was thinking oh do i go into kind of practice ownership or do i look at specializing or, or do I yeah, look at moving into industry? And in the end, it just, just the way it happened, it was industry that, that won out, it, probably as much as anything, just the right job coming up at the right time. But I had kind of investigated other options. So um, I, yeah, I, I, I absolutely love being in practice and the aspects I miss so much. So even if I go locum now, I, I don't get to do surgery and I loved surgery. That was the part I used to love the most. And uh, and just that interaction with the pet owner, you know, in the consult room. I used to, I used to regularly do a locum slot. I think it was one every one every three to four weeks on a Saturday morning. I'm um, just keep my hand in. And Friday night, I'd be like, Why do I do this? Why do I do this? Saturday morning, I'd be in the consult room buzzing because just having that <laughs> that two way that two way relationship. Um, and actually, I think I I deal it, when I'm when I am locuming, I deal less well with the emotional side of it now because I'm not in it all the time. If that makes sense. If I get a euthanasia come in, God, I find it really hard. <laughs> yeah, I I do wonder as you kind of get more experience, though, your attitude towards that kind of stuff changes anyway. And I think for me, and I'm still sadly doing that all the time, that actually I'm I'm just a lot more comfortable with my <laughs> emotional incapability. So I just you know if I if I feel like having a wee cry now, I just do it. Just do it. Yeah. You would just you would never want to show vulnerability, particularly in front of clients. I mean, that's all gone out. That's all gone out the window. I just I just cry. Um. So, <laughs> and I have no like I don't. And that's just that's just it. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm just embrace that now a bit more than I used to. And I to. think I think anyway. I think pet owners appreciate it because it 
you know what that shows that you care and what more could you want yeah. from you, the vet that's looking after your pet that they actually care that much yeah. yeah no i think that's true i think it's true and i think that goes for all, just all part like i think you know we are in a very caring profession and ultimately i think we just uh, and and showing that you care and uh, you know i think there's not absolutely nothing um wrong with that i can't i can't emphasize how much you know i think pet, pet nutrition is so important and i think i think over the coming i think for the next five to ten years i think there will be a shift i think pet owners you, you are right they're more suspicious perhaps of what we do they're more suspicious about what we, we're putting into their pets but equally, I think there will be that, as perhaps there is to a degree in the human side. Look at whole health and everything we do about our own lives, including exercise, including nutrition, including, I don't know, you know should we be taking supplements, all that side of things. That's going to work its way into to practice. And actually, I like to think uh, that in five to ten years time, kind of veterinary practice will move on um, to a stage where actually that's that's the norm. It's kind of, you know, uh, we, we take the whole pet and look after everything about that pet including what they're eating to, to, if, if the pet owner is happy with that so i want to say a massive thank you to hills who we're collaborating with for our lower urinary tract disease course please head over to the show notes to get more information about that course as well as information about what we've been talking about today so just to say another massive thank you listening and we'll see you all next week.